0: Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so that you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro!
1: Hello, Alison! Did you miss me? Every minute of every day, just like all our listeners out there did, I'm sure, too, as well.
0: Well, thanks to the magic of radio, they didn't know that I've been gone for the last couple of weeks. So, anyway, in this week's episode, Robert is going to talk to the authors of The Financial Diaries How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. We're also going to answer your question about putting your emergency fund in a muni bond fund. Fun. Fun with funds. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. Cyber Answers Answers. Today's question comes from Raymond. Raymond writes. My wife and I have built up the suggested six months' worth of expenses for an emergency fund, which is currently earning nothing in our checking account. Our financial advisor suggested a money market account, but I've not found one much above a 1% yield. My thought was to invest it into a tax-free municipal bond fund, specifically the Vanguard Long-Term Pennsylvania Tax-Exempt Fund."
1: Well, Raymond, good for you for building up the emergency fund and good for you for trying to get a little bit more money on that cash just sitting around, so I understand why you'd want to look at a municipal bond fund. First of all, uh, muni's are generally issued by states, local governments, counties, that type of thing, and generally they're actually safer than corporate bonds. But there are some circumstances when it's not the case. But it does make sense to look at muni bond funds to a certain degree. Plus, they're free of federal taxes, and if you're buying bonds issued by your local municipality it could be free of those taxes. So I assume you live in Pennsylvania, which is why you're looking at the Pennsylvania Muni Bond Fund. Plus it currently has a 3.5% yield, which is a heck of a lot better oh,
0: that's not bad. than nothing. Yeah. So
1: it makes total sense that you would be looking at it. However, bond funds do have risks. So there's credit risk. So if something happens to the economy, sometimes that'll show up in the performance of the bond fund, plus there's interest rate risk. If interest rates go up, the value of existing bonds tend to go down, at least temporarily. And if you look at this bond fund over the last decade, it actually did lose money in two years. So in 2008, that was during the bad times of the Great Recession, this fund lost a whopping 3.6%. And in 2013, which was a bad year for bonds, this fund lost 2.66%. So it's not immune to some drops. Plus, the longer the term of the bonds in the fund, the more sensitive it's going to be to interest rate changes. We just had another Federal Reserve meeting. They hinted at another rate hike this year and maybe three next year. So most people would suggest that you do not go into a long-term bond fund at this point. So I'm going to first of all side with your, your financial advisor and say that a money market is probably something good to look at. If you do a little digging around, you will find something close to maybe 1.3%. You can find something, look at Bankrate or Nerd Wallet or even the Motley Fool's old banking center at fool.com forward slash saving. But because you've saved up six months, and we've talked before about sometimes how an emergency fund can sit around doing nothing for a long time because emergencies are actually kind of rare, if you want to split that up a little bit and do some money market and then some in a bond fund, I wouldn't object to it, a lot of financial advisors would. I think it's okay. I wouldn't go with a long term. I'd go with Vanguard because they do have good bond funds, but I would look more at a short or intermediate term bond fund. If you want to put a little bit in that long term muni bond fund, I don't think it's a horrible idea, but keep it just a little bit and know that it's very possible that in any given year it could lose a little bit of money.
0: And, of course, if you want to learn more about muni bonds in general, you'll want to check out our awesome episode with Steve Broido, the man behind the glass. I believe the episode was called, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bonds, or something like that. Like It's it one cool. of our
1: all-time best, I'd say. It's, all,
0: it's only because it has Steve in it do we love it so much. Yeah, so. that's true. Uh, who's getting his tons- who got his tonsils taken out this week? Oh, really? Yeah. That's no fun. It's supposed to be horrible when you're an adult. Yeah, yeah. so he's suffering right now. Or he's on a lot of Percocet. <laughs> maybe, and he's happier than all maybe of us. He's OK. I don't know. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so that you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030.
2: I'm working
1: too slow for my foreman. I'm working too much for my wife. I'm paying for things I ain't got anymore. Yeah, I'm living too fast for my life just living too fast for my life. So at this point you may have heard about the stat from the Federal Reserve that almost half of American households don't have enough cash to cover a $400 emergency. So there's and there's no shortage of other statistics about the struggles of lower and middle-income Americans. But have you ever wondered about the stories behind the statistics? If so, I've got the book for you. It's called The Financial Diaries: How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty written by Rachel Schneider, a senior vice president of the Center for Financial Services, and Jonathan Mordock, a professor of public policy and economics at NYU. And today, we're lucky to have them both in the studio with us. Welcome Rachel and Jonathan. Thank you. So Let's get into the study behind the book um, and why you did it. You and your team tracked the finances of 235 families across, if I remember correctly, five states for about a year from the period of 2012 and 2013 and you looked at everything spending saving borrowing even sort of in kind types of financial transactions how did you choose choose these people and how did you monitor their finances was it an actual diary
3: I wish it were as simple as having given people diaries. That would have been more straightforward. But what we did actually is we had uh, field researchers in each of the areas of the country that we were working in. And they both recruited the families and then they went and met with them every few weeks. And so they were really collecting this data in person, which is what gave us such an amazing depth and richness around understanding not just the numbers that we were collecting, but what was going on in these families' lives.
1: And it wasn't just lower income households, although many of them were.
2: Yeah, in the communities, we weren't catching the very poorest or the very richest. Um, most of the households were most about a third below the poverty line, most between the poverty line and twice the poverty line, maybe $50,000. But then another group above the median in their communities, so kind of solidly middle class. But the key for all the families was that everybody had a worker, everybody had some form of employment, at least one member. And so we were trying to Capture households that, you know, they're working, they're trying to move ahead, and watching them over the year gave us a chance to see, you know, where they were succeeding, where they were falling behind, where the obstacles were coming from.
1: So I'm a certified financial planner, and like every financial advisor, you want to help people plan in the future. But to do that, you have to know how much money you're going to make. And to me, that's one of the most surprising things of your book is that how volatile income is for these people.
3: Yeah, it really was. So we the way we looked at volatility is we calculated the monthly incomes and then we compared spikes and dips moments when the income was 25% more or less than the average monthly income. And what we found in our sample was that on average families had 5 months out of the year where their income was either 25% more or 25% less than their average. And even that number really understates it, because when we look at how big those spikes and dips were, they actually were closer to 50% than 25%. We were just using 25% as this benchmark of, well, that's far enough from the average that it must matter, right? It must make a big enough difference in your spending. So what you see is people are really having to budget month by month or week by week, right? They're sitting down on a Sunday night one of one of my most memorable moments in the study was talking to a couple that said, you know, every Sunday night when we get our schedule for the week, we sit down and we figure out how much we're gonna earn that week and then we figure out which bills we can pay.
1: One of the things I like about the book is that you actually get to meet some of these people, although you've changed the names. And to me, one of the most interesting people is a woman named Janice Evans. So this is a woman who's been working at a casino for twenty years. And she works every night from eight PM to four A. M. makes eight thirty-five an hour hopes to double that with tips, but it doesn't always happen, and it, it varies based on the time of year, the weather, and to me, it was surprising that it, it depends on whether it was an even or odd year, because on certain years, Mississippi State plays a home game against Alabama and LSU, and then those people come up to, to Mississippi State, and they gamble on the way back. Like That determines how much money she's going to make in any given year.
2: Yeah, Janice is really amazing. Um, she works really hard. She... Uh She's very uh, kind of religious person. She doesn't actually like uh, gambling herself. She doesn't touch it. But her life is bound up with the gamblers. And when they're winning, because she depends on tips, she's winning. Okay. And when they're losing, right. she's losing. And when you know when the casino empties out in the winter, fall, you know football season comes in Mississippi, and uh, everyone's home watching the game instead of being at the casino. She sees that in her paycheck. So part of her is like, that's great. They should be home with their kids and their families and you know, saving their money. But another part is she really sees it in her paycheck. And you can see the summers are big, and the winter and the fall is really down. And that's a real challenge for her. And you wouldn't see it in her average income, which is pretty good for that part of Mississippi. But you know, September to November, she's actually having to cut back on groceries and food. So it's a really different story when you're you know following week by week how her you know how her family's doing
1: one term from the book that i i learned was episodic poverty so over the course of a year someone might be above the poverty line but depending on when they realize their income they have these periods of where they're below the poverty line
3: yeah absolutely true and you know we have this idea that people will simply save during the up months or borrow during the low months and smooth it out for themselves um, but that's, that's really ambitious when what you're doing is operating at breakeven. Like that's a completely reasonable strategy for those of us who can keep a cushion on our checking account because then we'll just fluctuate up and down around some basic amount that allows us to avoid fees and access low cost credit. Um, but if you're fluctuating up and around, up and down around zero, sort of the way Janice is, then what you're gonna find is you have some months where you are technically poor and where you really just can't make rent or can't as Janice says, you know, buy the same groceries you would during other parts of the year.
1: And the the spending is also very variable and it would be great if it went in the same direction as the income but it didn't and if i remember correctly something like 60% of the spending spikes were not accompanied by an income spike as well.
2: Yeah, everyone's juggling. And so there are expense spikes that are hitting. Some of them are medical needs. Some of them are, you know, your car breaks down, your roof needs fixing. So you've got that going on at the same time as not knowing what hours you're going to get at the shop or um, with Janice not, you know, knowing how good a night she'll have on a Thursday or what have you. That's the real challenge. And so a lot of the financial advice that, you know, we dole out, which makes sense for households that are basically stable, you know, automate your savings and plan and budget, like you're saying, it just falls apart. For these families, they're they're working really hard, and they're budgeting in the way they can, but they just can't. The financial advice we have just doesn't fit their situation. A lot of people might think of
1: this as some uh, more of a lower income problem, but apparently that's it's kind of creeping more up into the middle income areas. I think one of the lines from your book was that we we all hear about um, income inequality, but income variability is actually rising faster. Um, and it is affecting more people why is that is it the gig economy is it the change from a manufacturing based economy to a service-based economy why are we seeing more of this volatility
3: so the things you mentioned they're, they're a part of it and the gig economy is the thing that's getting or is the the phrase i think that's getting the most um, traction in explaining this but it's only part of the story but it's but it's a It's a useful, illustrative part of the story, right? So if you think about the gig economy, what's happening is that people are um, working for themselves or they're they're doing a job that is somehow outsourced by the company. The company is no longer bearing the risk and the ups and downs, right? So Uber is a good example. Uber, as the company, bears relatively little risk that more or fewer people will want to use their services. They've passed that risk entirely on to their workforce. Right, And the drivers are the ones who feel it if fewer people want to use the service. They feel it directly. But that's happening in um, all sorts of companies. Right? So retailers, both large and small, flex this, the workforce that's on site based on demand for their services. And as companies have gotten more efficient, more productive, what that means is they're able to use analytics and really carefully calibrate how many people they're going to want on the floor helping customers you know, Tuesday at four, relative to Friday at six. And so a lot of people who have full-time work nonetheless are sharing in the ups and downs of demand for the services of their employer in the way that we associate with tips. We, like, we knew restaurant workers experienced that. But the fact is about half of American workers work hourly, and a lot of those hourly jobs come with the right of your employer to flex the number of hours you get up and down. So there's a there's really a sort of a broader trend in the labor market around like shifting to um, putting more risk onto the worker relative to the firm, and I think that's that's really the more global explanation versus just blaming it on or just describing it as the gig economy.
1: You talked briefly in the book about just the mental tax of Mm -hmm. income volatility and cited some studies that found that people are more interested in in income stability than more income. You even used an example of a a guy whose job was to fix trucks. And he chose a job farther away, but was more stable. Um, It probably results in lower income, but he was willing to do that because it was easier for him to plan that way. And it just, there's a peace of mind that comes with knowing how much money you're gonna have a month from now.
2: Yeah, the truck driver, um, truck mechanic, one spring, I was visiting and uh, you know, just talking to his wife, and she was just in a bad mood. And I was like, well, what's, what's going on? It's a beautiful spring day. And she knew that in the spring, the trucks weren't breaking down, so her husband wasn't you know, getting so many hours, and they were going to see that in the paycheck. And she had a mortgage payment to make, and she had the money in hand, and she wasn't sure whether she should actually you know, put it in the mail because she didn't know what was going to happen in the next paycheck. And she was just carrying that weight with her in a way that you know most people wouldn't even think about it. You just send it off. But when you're living that life, everything becomes contingent, and you're always sort of waiting and juggling. And you know, it took us having you know spend time with families to see the costs of that. And you know, as you were saying, Jeremy eventually moved to a job that was 45 minutes away. He had a longer commute, worse pay, on average, but steadier um, hours, guaranteed hours, and it started to change everything for them. That was an interesting story
1: for me, too, because talking about shifting risk onto the employees, he basically earned a commission based on how many trucks he could repair. So He could go in to the garage, wait for a truck to break down, and not make as much money, just because that night it just happened to be no trucks broke down.
2: Yeah, it was all on him. Right. right. Sometimes mm-hmm. over an eight-hour shift, you have one truck to fix the whole time. Yeah. So winter and summer, he'd do better, but he was bearing the risk of seasonality in that case. Another part of this too is
1: something we've all heard about, and that is average wages have have not grown significantly, um, but other things have: healthcare, college, um, housing. So that's part of this, right? Why you just can't get by on what you used to be able to get by on maybe 20, 30 years ago.
3: I think that is part of it. It's a big part of why people have a hard time building up that cushion. Like You started us out by talking about that $400 statistic that um, has really made an impact in how people understand this issue. So why why can't people put aside $400? It seems like a relatively small amount. But what's happened is that the costs of a middle-class life have not kept pace with Middle-class incomes, and so people are really stretched and living um, in a way that makes it pretty hard to to set aside that money. And you know, the obvious answer for a lot of people is just spend less. And I think if we were, what we were talking about was luxury goods and extra vacations and really fancy cars, that's easier. That's an easier case to make. But what we're really talking about is people putting their money towards rent in a neighborhood where the schools are good, or buying a house in a neighborhood that's not such a far drive from work, or having two cars so that both members of a couple can get to work and drive kids around. We're not really talking about things that are easily cut.
1: Right. It's funny you bring up things like cars and houses and things like that, and if you don't have a lot of money to begin with, you have to make choices that can cost you more money down the road. like. You know, I, I know someone who does not have much money, so she bought a used old car. So what does that mean? Well, she she then had a series of repairs that she didn't have money for, and it's the same with buying an inexpensive fixer upper or buying a house in a neighborhood that's not as safe or the schools aren't as good. So eventually, the parents have to make that decision: do we stick with this bad school or do we go to a private school?
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, we saw a lot of that, and you know, it also came down to how well you take care of yourselves physically. I think. A, I think there was a Federal Reserve stat that said 25% of Americans are passing up uh, going to the doctor for you know things they need, and eventually that's going to catch up with them. Right.
3: Yeah, and it also ends up affecting whole communities at once because what happens then is you know your car breaks down and you ask your cousin or your sister or your mom, hey, can I get a ride? Um, Or hey, can can you loan me some money to fix my car? And so whole communities end up really having, like the good part is they pull together and you know get each person through the immediate crisis. The downside of that is that um, the f- economic problems that one family experience are usually experienced by their friends and neighbors too. And so it's hard for communities as a whole to pull themselves up.
1: Right, and that gets sort of into safety nets, right? where. Mm-hmm. People who are in better financial situations tend to be surrounded by people in better financial situations. So if they do have to rely on somebody else, those people have the resources to do it. Whereas, generally, if you're in these other communities, they don't have the same... But it still happens. I mean, You write about that in the book. How people, It was amazing to me, some of these people who don't have much money, but they're still lending money to friends and family if they need it. I mean, that's sort of like their own private banking system.
3: It's really true. Well, Janice, who you were talking about... Um, who works at the casino? You know, she she feels a real responsibility to tithe at her church. It's and um, it's more than just um, a financial choice, right? It's a choice to be part of her community, to connect with the other people in her church, and it's a really meaningful thing to do with her money. In addition to meaning that, you know, if she gets into trouble, like the church is also going to be helpful with her. Um, but we saw those kinds of generous acts from everybody, right? There was just a lot of willingness to help each other in the families that we worked with.
1: I was impressed by many of the workarounds people came up with, and I think it's the type of stuff that anyone could learn from, especially if you have any spending problems and that you know that federal Reserve study that found that people can't come up with four hundred dollars. something like seventeen percent of people who earn over one hundred thousand dollars couldn't do it either. So it's not just a lower income problem. But like Janice had the workaround of cutting up her ATM card. I think when she ran out of checks, she didn't get any new ones, and then she chose a bank that was like an hour away with horrible hours. So she she could only get her money if she absolutely needed to get it.
2: Yeah, now Janice's story on the um, on the ATM cards was an interesting one because you know when you're facing these ups and downs, it's very tempting to put it on your credit card or go to a payday um, lender. And she had gotten into trouble with payday lenders in the past. And the payday lenders require a check, Post-date a post check you have to write out. And she knew that if she didn't have any more checks, she uh, couldn't go to the payday lender. And when she ran out of checks, she uh, just didn't order anymore. So, she, she's then operating without checks, and she's then having to pay her bills uh, with money orders. And if you were just looking at it from outside, you'd think, God, that's crazy. Why doesn't she just use checks instead of having all these costs? But she'd figured out that this was way less costly because it keeps the um, payday lenders at bay, and she had a similar workaround with the um, her savings bank.
1: Yeah, another workaround I like was uh, with the family who, when they did have money, they would stock up on things like I don't know, like toothpaste and laundry detergent and things like that because they figured they're going to need that stuff. And that gets the money out of their hands, so they can't spend it.
3: Yeah, that was Becky and Jeremy. The Jeremy's the truck mechanic, and you know I think there was a real theme in the workarounds that we saw people come up with around self awareness, like knowing what would work for you to maintain discipline around your financial goals. It's hard. It's hard for everybody, um, and so some people find it really useful to do what Becky does and stockpile when she has cash. Another um, man that we got to know. I'm um, only spent in increments of under twenty dollars. You know, he just that was just sort of his rule. Like I, I only buy things in small amounts. Um, but people come up with those rules, sort of knowing their own foibles, their own right. dangers. For Becky, it was she felt like it's really easy to spend cash. But so saving in cash, she said, that's just hard for me. But but I know I'm going to need these pork chops or this laundry detergent, so I'll I'll just buy that now and eventually I'll use it.
1: Gotcha. So, we have very active discussion boards here at the Motley Fool, and one of the most active is one called Living Below Your Means. So, you can imagine the people on this board are generally frugal, they tend to be budgeters and things like that. So, very recently, someone posted basically, it was a cartoon on the board showing um, it, was, it was sympathetic to, to lower income people, saying, you know, the, the people who are out to get them pay, payday loans, subprime credit cards. Um, Uh, rent own, furniture shops, all these things that end up costing them in the long term. But but to a certain certain degree, this is the only thing that's available to them. Well, this set off a whole debate on the discussion board. And like I said, these people tend to be a little more frugal and and pretty financially responsible. So there was a, a heavy contingent of people who felt like, if you're poor, it's probably at least partially your fault. And many of them had anecdotes of people who had too many kids, people who took out Huge student loans to get English degrees, you know um, things like a told a story of a of a guy, a family who needs help because the father was killed in a motorcycle accident and didn't have life insurance, and they're saying, well, he had money for a motorcycle, but he didn't have money for life insurance. So there's that whole strain of that, and then the other side of the people are basically saying. There, but for the grace of God, go I. And all those folks had stories of like, well, my sister and I were on similar tracks, but then she had a kid with medical problems. Or you know, the spouse ended up being an abusive alcoholic. And then, of course, a lot of the stories coming up about what's happened down south with the hurricanes. And A lot of this is just luck, and these people didn't want these situations, but something happened. So when, if you were to wade into that conversation, how would you address... The people who say people are poor mostly because of their own decisions, but also there is a level of personal responsibility. Even when I was reading your book, I came across a couple of times and I'm like, "Oh man, that wasn't the right thing to do."
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we saw, we saw that too. Yeah, yeah, we totally
2: did. And you know, it both sides have some truth to them, right? Um, I, I think in the end, there was one thing that became clear, which was that everyone's making mistakes. I mean, when I look at what I've done over the right, past couple yeah, of years, it's like, totally wow, true. what was I thinking? Right? Or what should I have been thinking instead of so whatever I was thinking? And, you know, the costs, though, that I pay for my mistakes are pretty small because, you know, in the big picture, I can handle it. But the costs that the families we got to know are paying are just disproportionately large relative to the mistakes they made. And that sort of changed it for me. So, you know, you... Uh, don't have enough money in your bank account, and then something bad happens. Well, you should have saved before, and you can trace that back to some spending choice you made. But that probably wasn't that crazy. But the costs you're paying in terms of fees and then you know follow-on problems are just huge for families that don't have much of a margin.
3: Yeah, I think that's well said. I also would say. Um You know, of course, we all bear some personal responsibility, plenty, for how our lives go. That's just, it seems self-evident, but it's also really clear that it's equally clear that there are forces outside of all of our control that impact what kind of lives we ultimately have. You know, you mentioned the hurricanes, which are the most, you know, a really visceral, painful, current example where families might have been doing everything right and they just live in the path of a hurricane, and now they're starting from scratch. Well, that's true if you think about the economic forces that are changing our country as well. So Janice, as an example, you know, has no responsibility for the economic opportunities that exist in her region of the country. In her region of the country, the job she got is a good job. Is it, a, is it the best possible job one can get nationwide? Absolutely not. But like that's what's available in her area. And she went out and got herself the training and got herself into um, that job. I think what you see um, in our economy right now are some really big systemic changes and they're affecting people's personal financial lives in really clear ways.
1: So let's move on to the solutions. Um, so let's say President Trump finds your book <laughs> Loves it, calls you into the White House, and says, all right, I agree with you. And, and to be quite honest, reading about some of these people, I'm sure many of them were Trump voters, because they're talking about how they're, they're not getting ahead, even though they're working hard, and they're expecting some sort of changes. And he says, okay, which things should I be doing to improve this situation? Not that he's actually going to do it, but what would you tell him?
2: yeah. No, but it it's interesting. I mean, definitely, we didn't we didn't touch politics in the conversations with the households, but we were definitely in um, some very Republican areas. Um, what would we say? I, you know, when we think about security in this country, there's a real divide. There are Americans who are very secure, and then Americans like the families we got to know who are you know, struggling in various ways. And there are really two dimensions of that. And one is, you know, what's the underlying instability, like the hours. Um, you know, going up and down week by week. And the other is like, what are their coping mechanisms? And you need both. And so, you know, the top of the list would be some labor market interventions, I think. You know, like um, perhaps legislation that would say, you know, you ought to give your workers, or you need to give your workers, you know, a week or two weeks notice so they can plan better. You know, better would be a month. Um, so, there are interventions like that or helping collective bargaining so that workers can take back some of the power and get to better contracts. But then there's a whole series of things which don't get usually talked about in that conversation, which are financial. You know, better financial products, mechanisms, um, regulations. Rachel's done a lot more thinking on that side. Um, but there are a list of things which really go together and haven't been on the table in the way they ought to be.
3: Yeah, and, and that's the set of things that, that the business community often really. Can get behind and does like right, so you could you can make the argument that there is profit to be made in serving people with better financial services. Like we need, in fact, better lending, better savings products to help people manage the ups and downs they experience. I think we're at the beginning of a whole wave of innovation in insurance, and so you could think about some really pro-business approaches to encouraging innovation in that space. Um, I also think the, you know government has a real role to play here, and, and there's motivation, lots of motivation from both sides of the aisle to revisit the way we provide welfare in our country, which we're, we're getting, I think we just passed the 20-year anniversary of welfare reform, or we're just about to get to it. And I don't think anybody really thinks the way we provide assistance to families in need today is working as well as it should. And so we need to think about new and better policies to help people to manage their Economic lives and know they can be secure and take on risks for their future.
2: Yeah. I mean, the CFPB also, I would just say, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is an Obama um, innovation and pushed by Elizabeth Warren and all kinds of people who um, Donald Trump wouldn't necessarily see as buddies, that organization, that agency, the government agency is protecting a lot of Trump voters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it would, in some world, it would be great if Donald Trump said, hey, these are my people, and we need to strengthen this organization, this agency, and provide protection um, to those folks. They need it. One of the
1: points you make in the book is that the various social service, the various social services, welfare types of safety nets, varies across the country. So a lot of it is administered by the state, and a lot of them do have um, requirements in terms of assets. And once you have saved up some money, then you're not in the program anymore. But the evidence is that if you let people stay on the program and accumulate more assets, it reduces the chances that they'll come back onto the program later.
3: Yeah, so true, and 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 that is, you know, it just doesn't seem like it makes any sense. And there is state by state movement to change it, but it's hard. Um, and that's only one of the many policies you could pull at, pull at the threads of and say, you know, that just actually we think we're helping people with that policy, but the way it's structured, we're making it harder for people to get off of public assistance and stay off. So, for example, um, you know, it's it's generally pretty onerous to get public assistance. TANF, which is the main way we provide welfare, um, require has a work requirement, which is fine one way or the other, but it means you've got to document that you're either working or trying to find work, and it caps the amount of time that you can receive welfare. So, but at the end of two years, regardless of where you are in terms of your employment prospects, you're now done. And it it doesn't really work in any meaningful way to change somebody's trajectory. Um, We'd be better off enabling somebody to actually become self-sufficient. Let's invest that same money in some way that makes the person able to take care of themselves better.
1: Gotcha. Well, thank you very much. It's been very interesting. Um, I totally recommend go- the book again. It's The Financial Diaries How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. Rachel and Jonathan, thanks for coming in. Thank,
0: thank you yeah. so much. So I go to Boise for 10 days and yeah. I come home to find a huge stack of postcards on my desk. Look at these! Oh my
1: gosh, look at all look those. At- They're everywhere! Everywhere!
0: Alright, so what?! <laughs> Matt sent a card from Dinosaur Land in Virginia, so we finally got Virginia. Grant sent a card with a plethora of financial puns from London. Alexander went to Hawaii and he listens to this show when he bikes to work in Colorado. And I'm also going to say hello to his wife, just because. <laughs> Marianne sent a card from Chincaterra and approves of Rick's music choices.
1: Yeah, that is, by the way, one of the more brilliant aspects of our podcast, I have to, and it's all Rick.
0: And she also says that the audio quality has improved immensely over the last few years. So, <laughs> way to go, Rick, you're getting better at this! Gold star! James wrote from the Erie Canal, which is celebrating its 200th anniversary. He also made a number of requests in his card, which we will try to get to in the future. Sean went to Paris and says we're the most entertaining of the Fool's podcasts. Gene and Becky went to the Biltmore in North Carolina and are hoping that we can help them save enough to afford a similar place. Greg sent a card from Mongolia, the land of my distant ancestors, which I totally forgot I mentioned on the podcast, but apparently I did. Uh, where he was a Peace Corps volunteer for two years. And David sent a card from Scotland, the land of whiskey without an E. So thank you guys. I love that the postcards keep coming in, even though I stopped bugging you for them a long time ago. I need to take another postcard or a picture of the postcard wall, because it is it's, it's, impressive. It's, impressive. it's impressive. It's really impressive. All, it's all because of you. you. Aw jinx. Jinx. Yummy cook. Uh, Alright, well, that's the show. It is edited, thankfully, by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.